To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Oh, back from New Zealand. I made it. I didn't fall off a cliff somewhere. It would nip and tuck at times. <laughs> that uh, Those Southern Alps are steep, um, but so fun. Uh, what an awesome adventure. Um, so that's what this podcast is about. I'm going to hop on here for a solo episode and uh, talk about the entire trip from start to finish. And, and uh, you know, when it's fresh in my mind, you know, I, 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 it's just so clear to me, you know, things that I, that I learned from the stock and I've got a whole notebook of things I was writing down, you know, I had three days of traveling back. So I had plenty of time on my hands in these planes and airports. And, um, so, you know, I scratched down just a bunch of notes, but these long trips like this and, and when they're so fresh, I just learned so much from them. And so, um, I'm fired up. What a great trip. Can't wait to get into it. Uh, but first, I want to thank our sponsors, Taito Knives. Uh, they make ultra-light, replaceable blade knives. Um, these things have just changed the game for infield butchering for me. Um, to be able to change out a blade and then have a super sharp, sharp razor blade, uh, let the edge do the cutting. I never have to force anything. And I... I skin my entire animal in the field, I quarter my entire animal in the field, then I bone the meat off the bones uh, most of the time, unless it's required by law to keep it on, because it's just so much weight. And uh, then I also I, I cut off the head with my um, my Taito knife, and so it's just changed the, the way I infield butcher. I just absolutely love their products. Um, they have three different shaped knives, so they have like a fillet blade. They also have like a size 60, which is a standard, which is the one I use all the time. It'll also fit a size 22, which I need to get some of those. I think they'd be really good for caping, and I've used a short blade like that before and really liked it. Um, but three different blades you can put on there. They do bright colors, so you don't leave it at the butcher site, or if you set your sheath on the ground or your knife on the ground, uh, it really stands out. Um, they also have a solid blade knife, so some guys don't like using the replaceable blade knives for cutting off heads or cutting off quarters. Uh, you know, they, they put a lot of force on it and the blade breaks, and so they like to have, you know, a, 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 a standard blade, and, and Taito fits the bill on that too. They have a standard blade knife that they've come out with that, that holds a good edge and will do anything you need it to do, so... Uh, thanks to those guys. Make sure to check out Taito Knives. Our other sponsor for the show is IOTA. IOTA builds scope rings, and and so I think they have the best scope rings on the market. They make theirs with a, a level built into it, so it's got a little bubble um, on the the... The, the bracket that's closest to your eye. And so that way, when you lay down to take a shot, you don't cant your rifle left or right. Canning your rifle or count, canning your bow, uh, it equals into to left and right misses. It's so important that you get level. And shooting on a side hill, it's tough to tell what level is. Um, well, these scope rings will keep you level and, and give you accurate shots and keep your scope mounted, on, uh, mounted exactly where you put it. Um, they also have rifle stocks. So it takes them about two and a half weeks, and they do a custom build for you. They've got a light backcountry build that weighs 27 ounces. 
Uh, they've got a new stock that they're coming out with that has a, a higher cheek on it to really get your face tucked into your rifle. Uh, that anchor point, a consistent anchor point is so important, and a lot of guys are liking those those high-cheek style stocks. So um, thanks to IOTA for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, make sure to check them out. And over there at Eastman's, um, yeah, we got some magazines coming out. I know the new Bow Hunting Journal, it'll be coming out here the end of the month. Um, I've got an article in that one I'm really proud about. I'm proud of. It's um, like kind of all the intangibles of being successful, and it's kind of all this information that I've gathered from talking to other successful hunters on the podcast and and uh, buddies I have and and just kind of putting it all in one to to kind of give you what what these successful hunters have or the the characteristics that I, that are similar between successful hunters so um it's a it's a great article I'm really proud um you know those those articles it's just a it's a different platform and a in a different media type than the podcast. The podcast is all you know thoughts that the you have to think of on the spot. Where writing, it seems like you get to pick and choose your words and go back over it, and you get to structure it exactly how you want it to read. And so I really enjoy you know both formats, but I really enjoy writing as well. And and proud of this new article. So make sure to check them out. Uh, if you don't already have a subscription, uh, you can get a subscription to Eastman's by texting uh, Elevated three one nine to two two eight two eight. And uh, that'll get you a subscription to both magazines, get you a free gift, uh, $29.99 for both magazines, which is a deal. Uh, I also saw uh, an Easter deal we had out. Um, they're, they're running subscription deals here and there. Be on the lookout for them. It's just such a great magazine with, um, you know, the, the staff writers. Um, I, you know, I, I love the articles that, that these other successful hunters come out with. Um, and, and then our subscriber stories, um, they're getting so good. Uh, you know, guys are just really good about taking support photos, great harvest photos, and then they've really thought about their writing and their story and, and how they want it to come out. And it's really well put together. I enjoy every episode. So, um, Eastman's bow hunting journal and Eastman's hunting journal with that. Yeah. I've had a couple weeks off this podcast. Um, Gosh, it's nice to take a break and kind of get away from things, and and not that this podcast has ever become a grind, but it's it's just nice to to get out, focus on hunting, know that everything's taken care of and released, and and uh, really get renewed vigor um, to to get good guests lined up and good conversations. Like sometimes when you have time away from something, it it gives you like a clear perspective reflecting back upon it. So, um, yeah, I'm just so pumped at this podcast and the direction we're headed um, and, and just want to continue to bring you guys great content. So um, be working hard on that. And uh, got some videos coming out. Um, this Nevada video, I think it's one of the better ones that we put together. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I've just heard from um, uh, heard from uh, Brandon told me the last time I talked to him that uh, he really liked the episode. And then I reviewed all the footage when I was done with the hunt and put it all together before I sent it to him. Um, so just some great clips, great footage. Can't wait to see how they put it together, but really excited for that to come out. Um, that'll be out on Eastman's Hunting TV. With that, let's get this thing rolling. Um, New Zealand uh, solo episode. I mean, gosh dang it, um, what an adventure! I mean, international is so crazy. I, I've never, 
you know, I, I've been a couple places, you know, out of the country, but um, mostly just easy travel places. And I, this is like my first real experience with international travel. You know, it's it's just so different. There's, um, you know, just the the flights and the customs and and not knowing, you know, how to get through customs. Like um, when you arrive at a destination like New Zealand, I had to fly into Auckland and then catch a plane from Auckland to Christchurch. Well, I didn't realize I had to get all of my stuff in Auckland and then go through customs and their customs is strict. But I mean, I went through with a fine tooth comb. I mean, I cleaned every grass seed off my boot. You know, I scrubbed everything down. I opened my tent. I, I cleaned that out. And so, you know, I had a little bit of a warning before going down, but their customs is strict and they still had my tent apart. And then I'm waiting at the window, you know, for a couple of my items. And I had to wait like a half an hour. I thought I was going to miss my connection there, but um, I didn't. I made my connection, made it into Christchurch. Um, it's just so wild going to a different country. I had to go and shop for all four of us for two weeks. And so I made notes on the plane as I was going, but I get in that grocery store. I don't recognize anything. There's not one name brand that I know. Now, sure, it's all similar foods, um, but, but a lot is different as well. And then you just don't know any of the name brands. So I had a pretty good list, and um, I think I did pretty good on food, really, getting everything for everybody. Uh, it was going to be cold so we could keep meat and um, a few things. I had a cooler bag I brought down with me. So, um, but yeah, everything's just so different. I don't even know, you know, how I'm going to use my credit card down there. You know, the, the exchange rate, we get a great exchange rate here from U.S. to New Zealand. I think it was like 69 cents of our cents equals one New Zealand dollar. Um, but yeah, and then you get down there and you, uh, the rental car, we got our van, um, and, uh, the van, of course you're, you're driving, it's a, a right side drive driving on the left side of the road and you think it'd be pretty simple, but oh my gosh, my brain does not work that way. Now I have to tell you, um, Robin took the brunt of the driving. He's, he's been there, he's done it before and he kind of started with it. So we just made him stick with it, but I did take my shift behind the wheel. And then as he's behind the wheel, there's no relaxing. There's no looking at your phone or you're paying attention at all times. So you don't get into a head on or, um, turn into something, but it's so wild how, you don't realize where that front corner of your car is, like the front passenger side corner of your car. You're just so used to driving from the other side. And so parking's real strange. Even lane positioning is strange. And they've got little two-lane highways there and everything's in kilometers, you know. So, you know, we can go 100, you know, whatever 100, you know, 62 miles an hour or whatever. But so you're just trying to trying to make this transition. You go to get gas and um nothing's prepay you pay and then go inside like kind of like the olden days how it used to be but then you buy your gas by the liter and trying to figure out how many liters are in a gallon and pretty soon I figure out that we're paying about 10 bucks a gallon down there for gas so uh pretty spendy for gas being on an island um but yeah just everything's different um you know everybody has an accent and, and now I'm the foreigner you know which is which is strange but everybody has an accent and they all have slang words you know and so you're, you're just trying to get a get a feel for what's going on but you don't understand everything you know Everybody said, kept get saying, you know, come over and get tea. And, well, you know, I think that's come over and get tea. That means dinner. So, like, a dinner is tea. Um, 
God, there's there was a bunch of I'll get into them here as the podcast goes on. But um, yeah, it's just a, a totally different place than I'm used to, which puts me out of my comfort level, which is really good and exciting and fun. And, you know, as I like all this preparation, this backcountry hunting, I talk all the time like what it means to me, but it just gives me such passion and adventure in my life. And just I feel like I'm like I'm living life to the fullest. I, I really feel like I'm getting the most out of it. And it's um, being able to embark on an adventure like this was just amazing, especially for a blue collar guy like me to be able to go all the way around the world, Southern hemisphere and, and, uh, uh, and then just to be able to enjoy it out there. And I didn't have any pressure on myself to be successful. I, I prepared like crazy, my physical fitness, my, my shooting and, and physical fitness. It just pays dividends. Everything I've been telling you guys, everything I've been talking about, about the preparation, you know, it, it, it just keeps paying off. And that's, you know, over the years, that's how I've been consistently successful, but not only putting in the work now, it's like this, this new realization that, that, that I want to find another level. Like I, I just had, um, I just turned 39, which, um, is my 40th year. This is, it's, <laughs> so this has been the joke around our house. My wife is about three to four months older than I am. And so when she turned 39, it was my joke that she was in her 40th year and, uh, you know, I was 39. So, um, of course that all came back on me on my 40th birthday with, with my sister and my wife, but just hilarious. It's our, it's our joke around here, but I, you know, I really feel like I'm constantly improving. Like even at, even at 39, like, um, gosh, I, I just, I, my body feels great. I feel like I'm in better shape, better fitness than I was five years ago than I was 10 years ago. Like I, I think, you know, being active, your body adapts to the stress you put on it. And if you put stress on it every single day, your body adapts, your bone density adapts, your your, your joints and your muscles that support around your joints, they adapt. And so, God, I just feel great. I'm doing, you know, tons of miles and I and tons of elevation, trail running, really pushing myself. And I just feel great. And it just, it pays so many dividends, like on these hunts, like the the long traveling and the you know, the, the long flights and, uh, being sleep deprived. And I like, um, and, and then just day in, day out, big elevation, big miles and being able to wake up the next morning, fired up, ready to go hunting. And it, it changes your mindset is what it really changes. You know, the being able to count on my body and count on what my body can do, you know, is one thing, but just knowing what I can do and believing in myself is a whole nother thing. And so, um, I, I really, I just find, um, I find so many benefits to it. And as I, you know, I, I almost feel like, like I'm a normal guy, but as I feel walking through the airports and looking at people and seeing you know, people overweight, seeing people angry, God, this one guy was so angry on the, on the way home, our flight got delayed because of rain in Seattle. So, you know, I, I was going to miss my connection. Well, this guy obviously was going to miss his connection too. And for me, it's just not a big deal in life in general. Like I, I just try to look at the bright side, like a positive attitude, like your attitude is the one thing you can control in life. And, and when I'm in an airport, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to go through the, the motions. If I miss a plane, it's all right. I'll figure it out. My luggage doesn't show up, you know, whatever. I'll figure it out. I'll find a solution. Like I'll deal with it. I love like uh, Jocko. Um, I listen to his podcast every once in a while, but he's got a saying where, um, God, it's really good. I, I should have it tabbed up so you guys can search it. I'm sure you guys have heard it before, but 
he says, you know, uh, he's got a guy that's working for him. And every time this guy comes working for him, you know, and says, you know, we didn't get the mission or the funding fell through, you know, Jocko looks at him and says, good, it give us a chance to get better. Good. You know, you know, and looking at things in, in life, like your perspective, it, it makes such a difference, you know? And so, for me, I'm just going to relax and go through the motions and go travel. And so I was fine. You know, I'm not going to make my connection. I'm not going to make it home on that night. So I got to fly home tomorrow. And, you know, even though it was their fault, you know, they didn't pay for the hotel because they said it was tower control or whatever. But, you know, I'm not going to be upset or angry with the people at the front desk. Can you imagine how many irate people, upset people they deal with? And everybody's, you know, so self-centered, worried about themselves. And so, you know, I... I just try to have a good attitude. I try to let people go first. I try to be kind, be nice. And, you know, I'm happier in life that way. But anyways, this guy at the airport, he was freaking out that his plane was delayed. And and I don't know what he had going on in his life or the day he had or, you know, how important this flight was. But, um, God, he was just screaming in the terminal. I mean, throwing a fit, really. And it's like, you know, we're all dealing with this, you know. It's, It's, um it's going to be fine. I'm going to make it home tomorrow. It's going to be fine. Now, like I say, I, I can't say a situation, but as I walk through these airports and I see these people, yeah, I think a lot of people are, are happy in life, but I really think like this adventure and running and, and, um, uh, the physical fitness and just constantly working and having passion in my life. It, it just makes me feel like I, like I've got the secret to life walking around. Like I, like I'm truly happy and I, I love working hard towards my goals and love achieving them. But, um, it, it really does pay such dividends. My shooting, I've been telling you guys about that, about, you know, not just going through the motions, not just shooting my bow, but trying to further my understanding, further my knowledge and, and, and further my shooting, just becoming the absolute best shot I can. And it, it paid dividends on this shot, you know, keeping my cool, executing shots and just putting them in the spot. Um, and, and I made good on every opportunity I got, which, you know, is is, is the goal. You don't know how many you're going to get on a bow hunt. And, and um, you just want to make the shot when when given given the chance. But um, anyway, I uh, so you know, traveling through the, the fitness plays huge dividends. We get, we get down there, I do the shopping for everybody. We figure that out. Robin and Janus fly in. We're meeting, uh, we also hunted with Remy down there. He's really good friends with, um, with Janus and Sean, um, there on Hawaii. And so it's my first time meeting them, had a few interactions through the phone, but just a, a really nice guy and a, a true adventure. Like that guy is, going everywhere trying new things and um and I was really impressed by his hunting skill like um he he is a good hunter like uh with a bow in his hands he is deadly sneaky makes good decisions he's got good instincts um you know sometimes when you see these guys that hunt with both a rifle and a bow you know not that's the wrong way to put it like it it takes skill to hunt with both of them and it takes different uh, attributes to be successful at both of them and 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 it takes grit and determination no matter which weapon you're using and not to say that rifles easy it's just um archery um it's like another level like uh at 100 yards the game doesn't end at 200 yards the game doesn't end it's just beginning and to know 
you know, the, those inner workings of a stock of what you can get away with and what you can't and the movement, when to draw and all this stuff, it has to be learned. And it's an evolution over years of experience. And so when you see a guy that hunts with a bow and rifle that is so proficient and so good with his bow and a good hunter, it's really impressive to me, you know, that I know he's dedicated himself to the craft. Um, and I'm, I'm sure he's equally as good with a rifle or he'd be deadly with a rifle in his hand. But anyways, I, I was really impressed at that. Uh, my buddies Janus and Rob were nice enough to invite me along. So we get down there, do all the grocery shopping. And, um, so we've got a spot and, uh, we're going to heli drop in and, um, which is crazy to me, right? Take a helicopter to the top of the mountain. And so, you know, we kind of talk about it, but the the helicopters in New Zealand, they're just, they're like a float plane in Alaska. Like you can just access more remote country. You can get in to the tops of the peaks, you know, back where it'd take you four or five days to hike into, put yourself in the middle of tar country, and then you have it all to yourself and you use all your effort on these ridgelines, in these basins, in hunting, and especially on a limited time basis because, you know, we've got a limited amount of time here, there in New Zealand. We're trying to make the most of our time. We we don't have time to to hike for four or five days to get into a spot. We might burn all our good weather just hiking in or hiking out, and so it's fairly inexpensive. Um, but we, I think it was like five hundred bucks a piece to get heli dropped in and then heli picked up. And there's now there's some shady stuff that happens in New Zealand too. And so you know some of these helicopters, you know, they'll take guys up with rifles and drop them off, and they shoot their animal right there, and then they pick it up with a helicopter. Or sometimes they're doing like helicopters where they drop them at the top of the mountain, and the helicopter swirls around and chases game to them. Like I don't condone any of that. And their species out there are all non-native. They're all introduced. And so they really don't have any rules or any tags or anything. And they kind of view wildlife different. They almost see them as a nuisance out there. But, man, they're perfectly adapted to their habitat. And you think about it like elk in Nevada and elk in Utah. They were introduced into Nevada and Utah. And they were only introduced 50 years ago. You know, New Zealand, these animals were introduced like 150 years ago. And, and they flourished like they just released a few animals and they populated themselves in these mountains where they where they just a perfect fit. And it's the only place that has a huntable population, a Himalayan tar. So it's a pretty special place. But but there's some shady stuff that goes on with these helicopters. Of course, we don't want any part of that. And there's some really shady stuff. Like I was really turned off by the the red deer out there just because like these big stags you see. The majority of them are shot in a high fence. Like the wild, the free range wild uh, red stag, like the world record is like 320 inches. So when he looks like a, like a raghorn, you know, he was probably a free range one, but all of these points and palmation and tips you see, those are all high fence hunts. Like now, now maybe I'm, you know, and, and I think sometimes like the New Zealand, guides and outfitters are trying to make it seem like it's more fair chase than it is. And I'm sure if they've got a big property and you're in there and they're wily animals to get hunted, it, it could be similar to fair chase. But it's just me. I, like I, I don't want any part of any high fence, any grown anything. Like it's not, it's not the game I play. And sometimes they release them in a safari park and their antlers are so big they get hung up in the trees and die, you know, before the hunter can even shoot them. Or, you know, there, there's other stories out there, this shady stuff that goes on with red deer. And they actually grow red Red deer everywhere. There's red deer high fence everywhere, and they sell them for the velvet on their antlers, and then they they must sell some meat as well, and then they sell some of these hunts. And sometimes, you know, they'll they'll tell a hunter that it's free range when it's 
um, you know, it can be released into the wild, you know, and that's not right. That's it, not to say it's not right to each their own and, and whatever anybody wants to do. And if you're, you're into it, you know, whatever to each their own, we'll just leave it at that. But it, but it's definitely not for me. I, I want free range, wild, fair chase. Like, man, that's, that's, um, that's my jam. You know, I want it to be difficult. Like that's the fun of it. And so that's why I was so excited when I got into tar country and how, um, you know, they're, they're switched on. They're perfectly adapted to these rocks. They live kind of like a mountain goat. They feed in the tussock grass at night and then filter their way back up into the cliffs and get into this inaccessible country throughout the day. So, oh, I, I know I'm all over the map here, guys. I got so many things that I want to talk about and touch on, but so let's stick with the tar. So we get heli dropped up in and we get our weather report and it's like one nice day. And then we've got three days of crap and then you know a, one decent day or half day of rain and then we get picked out we got like six days in there or something so uh we start out and uh get heli dropped in there it's just amazing flying in the helicopter in those canyons and then to drop you off at the top of the mountain and then take off and you're just in the middle of tar country and instantly we start seeing tar we're in the spot nanny's kids um even saw some bulls and the bulls they're all haired up and their hair is part of their their show for um for for breeding for in in impressing the nannies and so their hair is all puffed up and kind of grizzly colored and you know the thicker bigger the coat the the bigger the the billy or the sorry the um the bigger the bull. God dang it. I'm going to confuse this throughout the whole podcast. They got bull tar and they got, you know, um, stag red deer and, and buck fallow. So I try to keep it straight, but they call them bull tar, which I think is really cool because I love chasing bulls. So, um, But anyways, these, these tar are just amazing the way they're in the rocks and things. And so we get there and we've got the first afternoon we can kind of hunt. We just kind of go off from camp. There's still snow on the ground and um, gosh, we see a bull tar right off the bat down below camp and I kind of make a play down on it and, uh, get the wind right and just run out of light. I can't find him. I don't know where he went over the edge. No big deal. We got the first full day and the weather forecast is that this is our nicest day on the entire hunt. And I know how the mountains are and I know when they fog up, you can't see anything. You can't, you, you, you know, you can go walk around a little bit, try not to get lost, and uh, maybe you bump into something, but um, the, the days you kill tar, the get, days you kill animals in the high country is when you got clear weather, and so we've got a forecast for clear weather, and, and all the way across the canyon, you know, we saw uh, a few bulls the evening before, and so... You know, I, I check in with all the guys and I'm really there so everybody can have a good trip. I want everybody to be successful. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rob says he wants to hunt out there, you know, just to the south camp there. Uh, Janus wants to go up and climb the cliffs up above camp. And uh, so me and Remy take off and uh, we're going to go across the canyon and then split up after we get out there. And so we start getting across and it's just awesome country. I mean, it's like rock slides everywhere. The mountains are just falling apart. It's steep terrain that's really testing you, testing you, you know, your your navigational skills to make it around things, keep your elevation, steep side hills. Like you got to be on your game so you don't fall off a cliff there. And some of these rock slides are spooky too and it it's not just a few rock slides. You, like you're walking through rock slides all day long. But we make our way over and we're going for we had um 
I think that day was a 15 hour day. Like, and, and I had trained before I went, like I told you guys training in my running and I try to run longer runs. And then, you know, the horn hunting was a good test for me because I could go buck snow and deep snow drifts and I could go for like, um, I got, I think I had a couple 10 hour training days, um, hunting horns. And, you know, that's maybe stopping for 10 minutes here or there, but for the most part, just walking for 10 hours through snow drifts. And so, you know, I, I know I've got the endurance to push, but like that day we did for tar and a lot of the hunting days, you know, you hunt hard in the morning or hunt hard in the evening, or you're sitting on a buck. And so there's some downtime, but that day we did like 15 hours of push and we got back way in the middle of the night. We ended up splitting up back there, but at first we kept together and spotted a nanny bedded by herself out in front of us and she had pretty decent horns and was like i'd never shot a tar and so you know i'll you know we're kind of looking for bulls but um you know we do need some camp meat and so some uh some red meat to have in camp so like um dream said well why, why don't you go try to sneak up and shoot that thing and i was like yeah i'd be i'd be psyched to and it was on our way to the bull we were headed after anyways and so i made a play down crept into 40 yards or so and started sitting there and she was just bedded and God, I was like, man, how long am I going to wait here? You know, half an hour goes by. And, and, uh, so I sneak back and to Rami, he was going to video the whole thing and just told him, I'm like, man, I don't know if she's going to get up. I don't know if we should just go for a bull or, you know, maybe let's try this. I'll just get really aggressive. I'll make myself seen inside 40 yards. If she stands up and gives me a shot, great. If not, no big deal. We'll continue on for that bull. And so I crept back in down to my knees. He went over the shoulder. He's got some great footage. I think he'll release here on his, you know, on his Insta story, but we, we crawl in and, and uh, over the shoulder, I get aggressive, kind of make myself seen as I pop up to my knees and get my bow up and I've got a good range and she stands up and gives me a shot and put one on her and, and, um, you know, perfect execution like that, that keeping your calm during the shot and executing, like having this, this process of shooting in your mind and, and really talking yourself through the shot. Um, it, it's just huge. Um. Uh, so, you know, calm myself, had a good range, draw back, anchor, settle the shot, pull, 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 shot breaks, perfect shot. She runs down the hill. And so we, we butcher up her. And so now I'm, I'm carrying a nanny with me, the meat from the nanny and the, the head I skinned out, took off the bottom jaw. And so we're going for some bulls we had seen. And, and we just start playing the game with different bulls back there. Eventually, uh, uh didn't turn my phone off there. Sorry about that. Um, so, uh, anyways, we're playing on some different bulls back there. Me and Remy decide to split up. He goes into this this back basin, and um, I'm kind of hunting these bulls. I've got four of them located down below me, and start. So I start making a play down. It just reminds me when you when you start playing the game with any of these animals in there, just like how key the wind is, and and I've I've talked about it before, but this higher understanding of the wind you know, just realizing or always paying attention to the wind and how it drifts in canyons, how the, the, the directional winds, you know, which way those are coming from, if those are coming from the south and, and then paying attention to the thermals, the way they rise up the draws, rise up the, the big valley or the big drainage. And then also how they go down the drainage and down the, the little draws and just kind of understanding how the wind works and what it's doing and where it's, um, like when it comes over the top of a ridge and then swirls down over top of a ridge, you know, on the lee wind side, you know, that that's a dangerous spot to play the game. But just always kind of knowing what the wind's doing, 
uh, higher understanding of it and then just believing in it just knowing that I that I you know every once in a while you'll get away with cheating the wind but for the most part you just got to get the wind right or it blows up and so I got these four bowls down below me and I circle around them and I get the wind right and then start creeping down and I've kind of got a ridge in between me and them and I pop up and I see one at 60 some yards and I decide not to shoot at that moment like I just knew I could get closer get a little bit better shot he was working down the hill so I got in and I got into like 45 yards of them and um and then I I pick out the biggest one and they're all feeding there they have no idea I'm there it's so nice too when the animals are unaware of your presence like I'd rather have a little bit further shot and have them not know I'm there than than when they're on high alert and they look up at you or they know you're there it, it's more of a pressured shot um, uh, the animals aren't as relaxed they can move at any time in in bow hunting it's gonna happen you're gonna have shots where the animal picks you out and that may be your only time to try to ease back your limbs and get a shot like I get it but the the perfect scenario is to be super sneaky and and not push the stock until you get busted but instead push the stock until you get close and comfortable and then wait for them to make the last move and that's exactly what I did into 45 yards I could see the one the other three fed out in the drainage and I'm in just super steep, gnarly terrain, and they fed out, and I kind of picked the biggest one and put my pin on them, execute my shot, follow through, and just absolutely pinwheel that bull. Like uh, uh, I couldn't have walked up and picked a better place for that arrow. Absolutely nailed them, but it passed through so quick. Like I knew it was in the spot. The shot broke. It felt good. But they they all take off, and all four of them are together, and and pretty soon my bull he doesn't even make it. I mean, it doesn't even make it 30 yards, 40 yards with the crew and then tips over and rolls down the hill. It's just so It's a whole reason I came to New Zealand to hunt like these tar. They're the ones that fascinated me the most. And I just love like um, taking on a new species and a new environment. I'm all the way in New Zealand. And here I am. I just put a perfect arrow in a nice bowl, you know, a canyon away from camp. I'm just elated. I, I, uh, it, it doesn't get any better. I just, I got some killer shots. I mean, you can't take a bad picture in that country. Everywhere you look, looks like a painting. And uh, it's, it's just wild public land up there that, that, you know, and it's so awesome that we're able to go there and chase their, their Himalayan tar. Where most places, sheep and goat, you got to draw a tag or pay thousands of dollars. But I'm, I'm just allowed to be up there and hunt those things. And, and um, just so appreciative to have the guys bring me along. And, and uh, so, yeah, arrowed a good bull tar and um take some good pictures um see what did i i took the the cape like the hair was like so pretty and so i just like skinned out the full body to the neck so i could like tan that and then i'll just do a european on the skull and so i skinned out the skull and packed them back to camp and i had the nanny the bowl all my gear for the day so i got way down to the bottom of the drainage which was like I don't know, at least a couple thousand vertical, maybe, maybe pushing more than that. And then I had to go up, you know, a couple thousand or 2,500 to camp. And so I got down to the bottom. It was already dark. It was already late. And so I just stashed some of my meat down there and the hide down there. Um, so I could make the climb to camp and then just figured the next day I'll come down and grab it. So I did that, got back to camp. Everybody met up. Everybody was super stoked. And then the weather came in. So I, I got the one nice day, the next day it poured. Um, and so I decided to go down, grab my meat, grab my cape down to the bottom of the drainage, climb it back up to camp, got down in there and there was some tar down in the bottom. 
some nannies and then I glassed across and glassed a pretty good bowl with some nannies and um, I decided to climb back up and, and get uh, we had radios to keep each other safe back there and and uh, and they're legal in New Zealand but we had uh, radios there and and, and uh, so I figured you know instead of going for that bowl like I'm gonna climb up and I get somebody an opportunity at that bowl across that I see and so I radio across and, and Remy was on the other side so I told him hey there's a there's a bowl down off that that tit down there if you want to make a play at him so I kind of watched through the spotting scope and watched the whole hunt unfold and watch him arrow a really nice bull tar and and uh, he finally got it down in the the river bottom there we helped keep an eye on it and and um it was just really cool to see him be successful and sharing that and uh and in that day it rained all day long um, but it was clear enough where you could see in glass. So you were just kind of sitting in the rain in your rain gear and it was fine. Um, the next day the fog rolled in and, um, you couldn't see anything. Um, the whole day was fogged in. It never cleared where you could see more than a hundred yards. I think we all went for walks at one point just to kind of stretch our legs and look around and maybe bump into something. Who knows? Oh, I did. It cleared it. Uh, I'm sorry. I had that wrong. It cleared like for maybe two, three hundred yards at one point, like barely cleared. And I walked down to the vantage point and I spotted a bolt just over from camp. And so um, we sent Rob on that and uh, got him a good play on that bowl. He went and got lost in the fog. Fog came back in. He couldn't tell where he was at, but finally ran into that bowl. He had a really close call, but it didn't come together. And uh, so we kind of went for some walks that afternoon and just kind of looked around, um, trying not to get lost in the fog. And I kind of marked a section, this steep, going back into this canyon. There's this really steep rock slide, cliffy stuff. And so I marked my route across that so I could get back and through, you know, or if it was foggy so I could make it over there and, and uh, make it back. So I marked that. And so um, that day was over with. Next day, same thing, fog and um rain and um I think finally in the afternoon and maybe it was the next day the following day in the afternoon it finally started to clear where we could see and so the morning was fog and snow and kind of intermittent clear and could see and couldn't see and so I made my way back and helped uh, uh Janus and, and Robin uh they had got on some tar over on the other side so kind of glass those for him and and uh, see where those are at, and then um, clears off, and it's beautiful. It's snow up on the peaks, and so I decide to to make my way way back over into this other drainage, climb all this elevation up over the top, and I did, and that thing was just full of tar. There was tar everywhere, and so I ran back off the other side, or didn't run, but dropped down off the other side, and I started playing on tar over there. There's a couple big bulls bedded up on the ridge, on this gnarly ridge, and I got back up and, um, you know, I had like a, like a hard time I had to leave, you know, because you just don't want to get trapped in tar country in the dark too much. Like I, I've already done it once now when I killed my bull, but, um, in a lot of this stuff, it, it gets so gnarly that, that you may have to stay the night, especially if you don't know your way back and through. And I was in unfamiliar, familiar terrain all the way over the top. And so it's getting dark at like six 30. And so I have a hard leave at six o'clock to keep myself safe and, I tried to make my way up around these two bowls and I had to go through just miles of rock slide and some of it was so steep where the whole hillside would start to slide almost like you're in an avalanche. Well, some of it got a little spooky where it's like, man, I 
I think I'm pushing it a little far. I tried to make my way over there, and it just started to get dark on me. My hard leave time hit, and it was like, man, I got to get out of here. I'll come back tomorrow. And uh, so I, I made it back to camp. Guys had had some close calls. Uh, nobody harvested anything. And then um, so we're on our final day. Helicopter picks us up at 3 o'clock. And uh, so I make a play way back in and up over the top. I'm just not sure I got enough time and enough time to make it back. Like you can't be late for the helicopter. This thing is so much an hour. Like, um, but so we all hunt. Um, I did get a play on a, a one nice bowl and a smaller bowl that kind of bedded on the hillside. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, I, I, you know, I, I rushed the stock, I, you know, I was, I was so worried about the helicopter. And again, I had a hard leave time at noon. Because I figured it'd take me um, two and a half hours to make it back to camp and wanted to be early, of course, you know. And it it was already like 12.03, 12.06. It was like, God, I got to... And he embedded it in this tussock right over the top of this rock. So I kind of pushed it until the stock broke and they caught me and busted out of there. No big deal. Like I say, I, I already shot a bull. Like, if anything, I want the other guys to be successful anyways. And so... I roll back, I make it to the helicopter and get radioed. Uh, Jane has shot a bull tar and he shot it with like an hour left with the helicopter to come. So he's up there scrambling to try to get this tar taken care of and radio him like, Jay, can I get up and give you a hand? He was like a thousand feet above me and, and he already had the thing pretty much cut up by the time I made it to any, any place where I could have made it up to him. So he finished it up, came down, caught the helicopter out of tar country just absolutely amazing experience, like six days up there. Um, Janus ended up arrowing a bull right at the last second. Um, Robin had some close calls, uh, didn't quite get an arrow in one, and then uh, Remy shot one, and, and then um, I got that bull and that nanny. So just super stoked and come down. We still got a week left. It's a two-week trip. So, you know, I uh, – so – we we talked to we we talked over our options, trying to figure out what we're gonna do. And so you've got chamois, you've got red deer, and you've got fallow deer. And the fallow deer down south looks so cool to me. It's you hunt them in this this kind of open terrain, like this open broken terrain that's um, like coolie country, like like eastern Montana, or like dry, like Nevada, and uh, not a tree around, but open country for miles and. Um, so we went down south to this fallow spot and uh, went down there and um, oh my gosh, the fallow were rutting down there. It's New Zealand's fall, our, our spring, and uh, the fallow are, are during the croak and it's during their rut and they make a rut pad and then that rut pad attracts does around them. So they scratch up all the trees, they scratch up all the dirt and then they claim the best piece of real estate in there and then they croak and they try to attract these females and their croak is, well, let me see if I can do it. I'm horrible. I couldn't croak the whole time while I was hunting them. I'd hear these guys make a noise. They make like a, like a pig noise. Um, let, let me see if I can do something that even it comes close to it. Is something like that. Like I think Jane has burped at him at one point, and that sound was pretty close. But they they make this croaking sound, so you're hearing this croak sound. So you hunt them, and they remind me of mule deer. the The country they live in, they're about 150 to 200 pounds. 
And then they've got like a 30-inch rack on them, 30 inches wide, fairly tall, like same proportions as a mule deer in mule deer country. But the croak and their antlers, they kind of remind me of elk, you know, because their antlers, you know, they've got a brow tine and then they've got a third tine and then they've got a big palm up on top. And uh, man, did we get to chase some world-class fallow deer i mean the those bucks they were in the croak just the heaviest i had you know you couldn't time the rut any better if you were timing the elk rut we timed it perfectly to the day like those things were croaking like crazy i saw a fight break out between a couple bucks and uh we're just in this this wild country we've got over a hundred thousand acres of this fallow country to cover and uh the bucks are just going nuts but the deal is with all the traveling and all the in-between, like we've got a week, I think, um, you know, uh, I think Remy's got like a couple more days or something, like maybe two days. And so that first day out there, I started seeing bucks and I just disappear. They dropped me off in the track. I just, uh, I started going from coolies and hunting these things and making plays, getting my wind dry. I was just in my element. I was having so much fun. It was just uh, the world's best place to play on fallow deer. I crawled in. This one buck had a bunch of extras, big palm on top. He snuck in, and the ditch took me to 70 yards of him. And then from there, I crawled over the ditch in the grass, and I got within like 40-some yards, and I was just waiting for him to stand. I waited for three hours for that thing to stand. So it's kind of like hunting mule deer where you get into range of a bedded buck, and you're just waiting for him to stand and give you a shot. But the same as the tar— like, even though we hit the croak, even though it's as good a spot as you could go to, there's bucks everywhere, they're still tough to kill. You know, they're like, they're like axis or they're, they're just really switched on. They, they have really good instincts. They're tough to kill, which just lights me on fire even more, you know, cause uh, it, like the challenge is there, you know? And so I start having these close calls and I start playing the game with a few and running into a few in the coolies and God, I'd. I mean, I just get into just the biggest rut fest in some of these big isolated um, uh, drainages that are away from roads. And God dang it. I mean, it it was so good. And um, pretty soon I started getting pretty picky. Like I'm seeing some good ones. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to sh- shoot a less than mature, especially on my first day. Like I'm, you know, I'm going to make sure it's a mature one that I'm totally psyched with. And so, you know, I, I start kind of looking around. I have one come by me, and he's got a couple busted tines. And I had him come by at 36 yards. Um, I could have shot that one. I passed him. But it's just good. I can still hear him croak. And every croak, you want to go see what's over that that next rise and see which one's croaking, you know. And, and here's another one. And, God, they're all different colors. They, you, they can be anywhere from white-colored to black colored and everywhere in between. And so some of them are dark bulls, which I really like the dark bulls. And then there's some that have axis spots. So they look like an axis to your body with spots. And, um, and then there's some, you know, that are totally white and the, they were saying the white bulls don't get as big or you don't see as many white bulls with the really good genetics. Uh, I never saw a white bull. I saw some white does. Um, but everywhere in between and they're, they're croaking. I hear one, uh, you know, over the hill, and it's like, oh, what's what's that one have? You know, and go over the hill and just come into a little bit of cover, manuka brush and thick stuff or whatever, and and you just look in there, and they're just a a big fallow deer, and he's rutting does, you know, in the distance, and you're chasing these things around. It's like, man, this is absolutely wild. 
I'm in New Zealand and I have a chance to hunt these fallow deer, which I've never hunted. And, and they're in this terrain and habitat that I absolutely love. And so I'm just making plays, keeping my wind right. And finally I see this one and he's got such big palms on top. He's just a megalodon and, uh, he's just on the move and he's moving around. So I just kind of keep with him and all of a sudden I'm trailing this thing and I'm coyoting him kind of like I would an elk and he moves, I move, he moves, I moves. And then he goes around the corner and I go up over the top and spot him again. And I spot him and I've been chasing him for a mile, mile and a half by now. And, uh, now he's going, you know, again, this is where that, that fitness level plays such huge dividends. You know, not only have I been tar hunting, but I've been going hard each and every day And this day, like I've got some water on me. I think I maybe drank six ounces this day and had like, uh, nothing to eat. I've got a few things in my pack, but there's no way I'm stopping to eat. Like I'm chasing these things all day and it's like 65 degrees. You're sweating pretty good and you're moving and you're climbing hills, but that fitness, I can just count on my body and I know like like it's time to make something happen. It's time to hunt, not to eat, not to refuel. I'd do that tonight. And the next day, my water actually fell out of my pack in the truck. So it, it fell out of my pack like in the road driving up. And so I brought no water for that day. I hunted with Robin all day. I went all I, He did give me a couple sips of his water. I maybe had two to four ounces of water, no food the next day. But I just know all that hard training, all those trail miles day in, day out. I know what my body can take. I, you know, I know that I can, I know that I'm going to be fine. And, and I'm probably going to kill a fallow buck if I just keep going and keep pushing. So I, I trail this one. I took trailing for like a mile and a half. And uh, finally, I have him moving at me, and I get in front of him, and I get down the ridge. I've got a good wind. He's coming at me, and he gets in the bottom. He starts rubbing a tree, and then he beds down. Perfect. And so I've got a good approach on him, and I approach in, and I get like 36 yards from him. And um, so this is one of my mistakes. I'll go back over, okay? So remember 36 yards, and I'll tell you about it here a little bit. So I'm 36 yards. I've got a good range. You can range the palmation on the top of their horns and get good ranges on them. So you can see their horns, and it's kind of like an elk where you can see which way he's facing. You can see when he's alert. You can tell so much by that animal's horns. And, and furthermore, you can tell so much about an animal when you can keep an eye on him like that. Like, like anytime you can keep an eye on an animal you're stalking, you can just tell when he's looking up, when you have to, to be careful not to get caught, when he's alert. You know, and some of these fallow deer, they're rutting so hard. They were falling asleep in their bed. You see their eyes closed and their horns tilting, and you can tell that by keeping an eye on their horns. Same thing with muleys, same thing with elk. It all applies. But uh, So I could keep my eyes on his horns as I'm creeping in. And I can tell when he can hear me. I can tell when he hears a blade of grass crunch or when he hears something and I see his head look over in my direction. I know then that I've got to be still for 10 minutes, let him forget about me. You know? So I get into 36 yards and just waiting for him to stand, waiting for a shot. It's the buck I want. And um, he he gets up. And so you you got this this other deal. when you When you sneak into an animal... You, you got to decide when you're going to draw. A lot of times I'll draw right as the animal gets up. But if they're facing you, like, and they're getting up looking at you, like, I I choose not to draw. I choose to sit still, let them look around a little bit, realize there's nothing there, and go to feeding. And then I got this, this broadside shot where he doesn't know I'm there. I can wait for the right angle, the right shot. So that's what I choose to do on this book. He's facing me, and he stands up. But when he stands up, he looks right at me, and he catches me. And, you know, I'm not moving. I haven't moved a muscle 
but it's just humanoid crouching in the grass. So this is that mistake that I'm telling you about, or not a mistake. It's just like, it's it's just something I can learn from. Like you crawl, crawl into range of the animal, and then you think it's all over. He's going to stand up, and you're going to get the shot. But if you position yourself in wide open grass with no terrain, like they can see you right as they stand up, and and sometimes they look over you, but it, it's. If you have the choice or if you have the option, it's always better to like tuck yourself in. And I had two little bushes up above from me. What I should have done is crawled to one of those. Even if I had a further shot, I could have tucked into that brush. He would have stand up, stood up and my outline would have been broken up. He never would have caught me there. And then I could have waited for that nice broadside angle. But instead, he stands up at 36 and catches me. He's looking right at me. There's no shot angle. I'm not going to try to draw my bow. You know, I'm just, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to let it play out. Hopefully he thinks of nothing, goes back to feeding, and he, he busts. So he busts out of there, and he's busting out, and I'm hitting him with my rangefinder in shooting position, arrow knocked, and he starts to slow up, and I get a range of 52, and he stops, and, and then I just... You know, I have my bow up and just ease back those limbs like as slowly as I can. He doesn't move a muscle, and... um yeah, sit on my shot the same way. Even though he knows I'm there, it's either I'm going to make a good shot or I'm not going to shoot. Put my pin on him, pull, 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 shot breaks. And uh, I, I hear that arrow thwop him, you know, that good hollow sound that you want to hear. And so I knew I hit him good. He ran over the hill. I didn't quite see where the arrow hit him at, but I knew the shot broke right, and I heard the sound. So um, I give him, you know, a handful of minutes to go up there and look, and arrow's just covered in blood. Uh, I actually hit him low lung right there. and um, I actually trail him around the side of the hill. I give him like 45 minutes. Figured it was a perfect shot. Trail him around. And uh, his head's still up around the hill. I'd get like maybe 100 yards. His head's still up. So I had to put another one in him. In his bed. But he was hurting bad. Um, I think the shot was just a little bit low. That first shot. Um, didn't skim the bottom of the brisket or anything. Just like, you know, if you're taking... The bottom of the brisket, maybe four inches up, something like that. Um, he would have died with that shot. Uh, I just didn't quite give him enough time. I could have given him an hour or more, but he was hurt so bad he couldn't even make it up or make it out of his bed. And so able to put another arrow in him and just arrowed a monster free-range fallow. Oh, my gosh. And Remy came to pick me up, and he just couldn't believe it. Just the palms on it and has this big layback kind of drop tine, or they call it a back scratcher on there. I mean, for a free-range fallow, they don't get any better. It's just such a good one. And, uh, you know, he told me, like, I think 180 is, like, their score to SEI, 180-plus is, like, a gold medal one. Um, 200 is a great buck. And uh, I'm not quite sure how to score it, so I'd just be guessing. But um, this one's well over 200, just 220. Who who knows? Big palms, just my dream fallow buck. I was able to arrow and uh, collect there, take some pictures. Um, Remy ends up arrowing one that night. He ends up getting on one. The croak's going good. He he shoots a mega stud too. Big old palms, and he was super stoked. He had to collect it the next morning, leave it overnight, and then get it the next morning. Um, but yeah, we doubled up. Um, uh, Janus ended up arrowing a buck the the next day. He arrowed one um, really nice fallow buck. So it, it was just good hunt. And I hunted with Rob the next day. Man, Rob's a he's a heck of a hunter, and he does great out of Hawaii. Kills so many good axis bucks. He's got so much skill just from so much stalking. Comes out to Montana. He was successful on a good bull out here. Good whitetail. Um, but he did develop like some target panic shooting at animals out there and, 
and um, had a hard time closing the deal. I felt so bad for him. I wanted him to succeed more than I I wanted to succeed. You know, he just um, we hunted hard. I hunted with him the next day. Helped him glass up some, and um, yeah, he's just struggling with that shot process, and he he doesn't really have it too much on targets, but on animals and. You know, I, I'm just guessing to try to, you know, you're all trying to help and give them the, the, the right advice and the, you know, the, you know, that you say the right thing. But it's, God, when you're shooting, you just lose your confidence in your shooting. You you lose, start to second guess things. And, um, you know, he was shooting his bow at the target, make sure his bow was on. And, um, he, you know, he just just missed some shots that he normally makes 100% of the time. And he's a great hunter. He's going to bounce back. He's going to be better than he ever was before. But I, I sure felt bad with him having to struggle on a hunt. And two, like these hunts, like the more you want it, the tougher it is. And, and even as bad as I want it, I have an attitude where, you know, if I kill it, great. If not, no big deal. And not that, you know, my attitude makes a difference or anything. And I've struggled. You know, I, I told you guys I've struggled with target panic before and had to overcome it. And, and mine was through, you know, back tension shooting and, and uh, being able to set my pin on, on, on an animal. Like before when I got target panic, my pin would aim at 6 o'clock of the animal. So it would aim just low and my pin would be stuck there and I'd have to force it up and make it go. And it, it really, it's like the worst because when you, you, you get it, the more you shoot. And so like, you don't get it when you start hunting, you get it after you're already good at hunting, after you already have it figured out, you've made a bunch of quality shots and it starts to creep in. And now all of a sudden, you know how to hunt, you know how to make good shots. You've done it a million times over, but now you can't make that shot or that pin doesn't settle right. Or, you know, I'm just guessing, but maybe that pin hits hair and make it, makes it, make it go. And the shots just aren't, aren't close, you know? And so he's got to start a shooting process over. He's going to back tension, and then just think about that shot process every time. And so, um, like I say, he'll come back better than ever before, but I did feel bad for him. Um, and say he's a, he's a great hunter and he's a great shot too. He's a great bow shot. Um, so he'll get it, but it's just bow hunting. And it's so much easier said than done. Like you'd sit here and talk about it or you listen to it and you think, Oh, I get my shot at that trophy animal. You know, I'm going to make it. God, it's just not that easy. Like it's something we have to work at. All of us guys have to work at nonstop. And and even me that you know, I've been successful for the last twenty years with my bow, hunting exclusively with it and in a bunch of trophies, but I still have to go through my shot process every shot. And I have to when I'm sneaking in on an animal, I have to think about it and think, okay, take your time, execute a good shot. You know, I can't force it. You know, I I go through that and it's it, it's just it's never easy for any of us and it it takes constant work and constant effort and the problem is is the more you want it like the tougher it is and and we all have been training all year long for our hunts whether it's mule deer whether it's elk and so there's so much pressure on that shot and you want it so bad you know but that's the time to make sure you take the extra second to, to aim and that's my whole secret to success too is not just letting my pin find the body and making it go, but then sitting there and aiming it. And it might only be like a second extra time, maybe two seconds extra time at most to just let that pin swim in that body a little bit. Just let it swim around where I want and make my shot. And boy, if you can just take that extra second, extra two seconds, just to let your pin aim in the body. And it, it goes back to all the old, what is it, Fred Bear, the pick a spot, like you're picking a spot on that animal you want to hit instead of just picking the animal or the body. And you're just, shots are so tough to come by too. Like you have to work so hard to get a bow shot. Like I got three shots this entire trip of hunting hard for the, you know, the entire duration of the hunt. 
So like, um, you know, you just don't get that many opportunities. And so like you're trying to create that opportunity. And if you create a shot, you have a chance. And so you're trying to get a shot on a deer. And a lot of times that deer, he eludes you or they bust you or they bust you in the wind. You just don't get a shot. Don't get a shot. So when he's finally sitting there broadside, the only thing you want is to get a shot. And so a lot of times you just want to make the shot go, whether it's a hit or miss or whatever. You just want to get a shot. And it, it's the right attitude to have is I want a good shot. I, I want to execute a perfect shot or I don't want to shoot, you know, and, and, like it's there's there's this fine line between patience and also seizing the opportunity. Like when it when you do get an opportunity and he's broadside, it's time to loose that arrow. But you also don't want to force it. You don't want to force it into a bad angle. You don't want to force it into a longer shot. And the other thing too, and this is you know I'm not talking about Robin. I hope he doesn't mind that I talk about him on the podcast. Like I say, I have nothing but respect for him and his hunting, and he's going through some stuff with his shooting right now. But he'll get it figured out, and he'll be better. But I I also I think a huge part or a big trap nowadays that guys are getting into is shooting long range. These bows are so accurate long range. Like um, you know I can I can go out right now. I've got a target sitting at. 80 yards and I'll put five arrows in the middle of that thing but that's in flip-flops in the backyard on even terrain without my heart rate up like that's a perfect world and it's never a perfect world when you're hunting yeah heart rate's up you've been going all day sweating like a madman you're on uneven terrain maybe balancing on a rock like um shooting a steep side hill you know whatever the case is it's just never perfect I also find that I'm you know 15 yards worse of a shot from my knees or at least it's it's that much more difficult to shoot from my knees well over half of my shots come from my knees and so you have to take this all into account and I think it's all like a mindset you know I just I I got this mindset I got caught in the trap where I was shooting so good and I practiced so much at longer ranges that I was starting to get into these longer ranges and shoot and this has been years ago and I'm just telling you my thought process so this was years ago and I'd get into that long range and I'd shoot and sure I'd kill some animals but I'd miss more animals too and I miss opportunities and I started just changing my mindset to going you know real life real world applications like you know where am i 100% at where where do i know i'm going to make this shot and starting to you know sneak in just a little bit closer and i still love like i i mean a 40 yard shot to me is a gimme how much i shoot like if i can get into 40 45 47 100% of the time or you know 99% of the time i'm going to i'm going to make that shot it's um you know so it's inside my comfort level and so like it's just a mindset of i'm going to get close and kill him like I'm either going to get close and kill him, you know, but I, I'm not I'm not going to take and not that it's a Hail Mary. Today's equipment with today's rangefinders will do it. But I just noticed that there's, you know, it, it's so hard to, to execute a perfect shot under those circumstances and under that adrenaline and wanting it so much that there's more room for error. That if you're if you're taking a 70 yard shot or 75 yard shot, you know, there's there's a a high probability that you will miss or hit that animal wrong or hit him right you know that can happen too but god it just this mindset you know flips so just well okay god i i want to get in close and kill him and so you know just not not taking that shot like having that shot and going no i'm gonna get a little bit closer i'm gonna make sure this thing dies i've got my wind dry i know i can stalk i'm not gonna allow him here so you know there was times on this hunt where i'd have things at 70 yards or close and i'd put my head down and i'd stalk closer 
I'd get inside, you know, 50 or inside, you know, whatever it is. You know, my fallow deer was 52, started at 36. He spooked up the hill, 52. It's like, I can make that shot. You know, I, I will make that shot. But just that change of mindset, just make sure that you don't get caught in that trap of, of shooting the long range just because you can in your backyard. Um, you know, the, the art of bow hunting is to get close and kill them. And a lot of people will tell you 40 yards isn't close, you know, the, the, where, you know, a lot of guys like to get inside that. And I, I love a 30 yard shot. It was just like I was telling you guys before, I don't want to push the stock to a breaking point. And, and when I push in closer, like sometimes the terrain allows for it, but you're just so much more apt to get caught in at like 20 yards than you are at 40 you know there's just more room for error there and so you know i don't like to force the stock till it breaks but i like to get close and kill them just some observations i had you know as i was hunting there and as i was hunting there in new zealand but um what a wild place i mean the mountains are so big out there there's so much country it looks like an island on a map like it's not that big you hunt there for a lifetime and not cover it all and, and there's so many possibilities we heli dropped in and and um you know, like I told you guys, it's just an advantage to be able to get away from the locals, get away from other guys, put ourselves in tar country. And two, you know, everybody can hunt there with a rifle. Nobody's really hunting with a bow, you know. So us with bow on public land, um, you know, we've got to have opportunities. And so we put ourselves in the best tar country for the most amount of days. So we give ourselves the best chance of being successful. But there's ways to do New Zealand inexpensively where you can hike up to the tops of those peaks. You can hike up and hunt tar, hunt chamois. They have public huts everywhere that sit on these public grounds that go up these river bottoms. And you anybody can stay in those huts overnight. And uh, after we were done hunting fallow, we had a couple more days. We ended up hiking up this drainage way up into the southern Alps, into this public spot. And... Uh, so this is where I told you I got, I got turned off by a lot of the red deer stuff that goes on there. Just all the high fence ones that get shot, all the giant palmation. I don't want anything to do with that. And so the free range ones, it like didn't really get me. It was like, well, it's a five point bull or that's what it looks like. You know, it looks like kind of a raghorn bull. So I really wasn't that excited to hunt red deer. Really, my whole mission of going out there was tar. You know, I kind of had fallow in the back of my head. I think I even mentioned it to you guys at one point, but. Um, I had fallow in the back of my head just cause I really liked the country that you, that you hunt them in. And I really liked their horn configuration. Um, and so I was pumped to hunt those, but really red deer wasn't a big deal to me. I was turned off by all the stuff that goes on out there, but I had the wrong attitude. There was flaws in my thinking. Like you can go shoot a high fence whitetail too. That's a giant not work for it. You can go shoot a high fence elk and not work for it. So there's other high fence animals, but the free range whitetail is where it's at, or the free range elk is where it's at. Well, the free range, um, red stag is where it's at. Like that is super fun. I need to spend more time doing that next time. But so we went up this, this public drainage and just hiked our way, way up in it, split up up there and got up in there. And I ran into, um, two New Zealand locals. I'll release the picture. I took a picture of them. They were in there for rifles for a couple days, and uh, they ended up killing a monster red stag. And so this was the beauty of it is I got to see these guys hiking out and then got to look at their stag. And um, their stag, they just killed such a good representation of what a free-range stag should be. Like, oh my gosh. Like, a stag should look like a five-point bull and then have good crowns on top. And this one was an eight-by-eight. He split and split again up top just a monster free range but just the palmation and mass and then you know the the bottom brow tines were just caked in like red 
brush and cedars and stuff. I mean, just a monster free range red stag. And I got to, these guys killed it that day or day before or something. We're packing it out. I got to look at it, congratulate them. Of course, they were New Zealand guys, so they had the shortest shorts on. I don't know how those guys do it. The the deer flies uh, were biting the heck out of me. And I was all covered up except for my hands and my face. And um, I'm still swelled up. I, th- I think I got bit over a week ago. I'm still swelled up from those things. Um, I don't think Naked and Afraid gives enough credit to some of those bug bites people get. Can you imagine, like, some of the sand flies? Do you guys watch that show? So, um, they just, um, they make it seem so easy or so nonchalant. It is 21 days in the bush naked, and they stick them in the most bug-infested places with sand flies and deer flies and mosquitoes. That is pure torture. I'm telling you, I've been in bad mosquito country before. It is torture. Like, like I do Alaska, but I've got all the right gear and stuff. Like, um, to not have anything. And I've been um, to a couple spots where you don't have any mosquito dope or anything. Or you, you don't, you know, they bite through your shirt or whatever the case. And it is miserable. It's torture. I don't think they give those guys enough credit on Naked and Afraid. I see some of those bites on those people. Three weeks in that country of trying to survive out on your own naked. That is is brutal those are tough mentally tough people i can appreciate that um but yeah there's red deer running into that public one and then i hiked way back in there i put on a bunch of miles that day of course they've always got you crossing a creek so you're wet your feet are wet you know because you just can't take off your boots every time so you just end up marching through it wet feet i ended up there and all of a sudden i glass up the drainage and here's this big red stag and he's crossing the valley and uh, so this animal that I wasn't too excited about, all of a sudden, I've got this giant stag in front of me. And he's like a five-point bull, but he's like a six-by-six six with good tops on him. You know, he's got like the crowns on him that split three ways. He looks like a red stag. He's just this beautiful, majestic beast out, out in this like glacial-cut valley with all these huge peaks of the Southern Alps around me. And then I'm in the valley bottom and some timber going up the side hill. Um, just absolutely awesome back there with my bow by myself, me and this bull. And so I moved to try to cut him off. I got a good win and I just got caught in the open kind of, and I got to about 150 yards and I just got stuck and I just had to keep letting him go. And so he crossed the valley and into the timber. And then I gave him a vector into the timber and tried to intersect him up there. I had a good wind and just moving through and it got, it got really thick in there and, and ferns. And I mean, that's the other thing with New Zealand too. Like like ferns, I come from the Pacific Northwest where there's ferns, and so then you see those ferns out there, and they look similar, and you get close, and the leaves just have this different configuration or different pattern, and like, they, they've got stuff that looks like sagebrush in that open country, but it's not sagebrush, and so they've just got different plants and different animals in places that we would have the same plants or animals, they're just a different species, it's so wild to me. It's just like, it's just on the other side of the world. That's what it is, you know, but I followed that red stag into the timber. I heard him roar a couple times in there. I tried to, to keep vectoring towards him and, and I never did turn him up in there, but, um, fun to chase him during the roar with my bow and a uh, really fun experience and, you know, uh, public land valley spot. And so, um, it, it was really cool to do. Uh, I, I got to just plan more time for the red deer next time, but, um, the tar was where it was at. Uh, that's what I was really looking forward to and got to get up and, and, um, see that and got to, got to just push as those rock sides all day long and those peaks and big climbs and um it's it's where I feel at home at you know it's like that high country mule deer and it it um I'm really lucky like 
blue collar guy that got to go across the world and go hunt these different species. But man, we have it all right here in our backyard. It, it is too about enjoying what's around us. And we are so fortunate to be able to have these public land spots, public land mule deer and public land elk and antelope. Uh, we're into bear season now. I'm going to start hunting bears here a little bit with my bow and um, we're just fortunate to have all these great things around us. And the States is a great place to travel and have adventure. And it's available for all of us out there. So we just need to get some tags. If we didn't draw the tags we're after, you know, like Jocko would say, good. Gives me a chance to learn a new spot. Gives me a chance to learn a new over-the-counter spot that I can go back to year after year. You know, um, you know, didn't didn't get the time off I want. Good. It's going to make me... Really good. I'm going to make the most out of all my weekends and I'm going to scout really hard. You know, whatever the case is, but just looking at things with a with a good perspective. And, and then, you know, we're just the fortunate ones. We get to go have adventure and we have passion for things. We get to put our hard work. I mean, I came home. I'm instantly running, you know, running the day I got back or in the next couple of days. Just how important it is to me. And, and uh, you know, I enjoy my hunts more when I'm in good shape. Um, I, I just know what I'm capable of, and and um, I haven't hit my peak yet. You know, I I there's there's other there's more levels for me to go. I can be a better hunter. I can be a better shot. I can be a better stalker. Make smarter decisions. I can be in better shape. And I I'm not just gonna be happy with the status quo. I'm gonna continue to push to to wake up early and to sacrifice more than the next guy to make sure that I give myself the best chance at success when I'm out there. Um, but but we're fortunate. We get to test ourselves. And I think men in today's day and age, that's what they're missing is they don't get to test themselves. They don't get to test what they're truly made of. And it's why so many people get stuck, you know, thinking back at high school sports and how it was in high school and the good old days or whatever the case is. Or But that's when they got to be competitive. It's when they got to test themselves against other men or test themselves. And I, I think it's a test for yourself, you know, and, and um, you know, I, I like to... I like to think and not really um, judge myself, but think back and think of where I could improve and where I can do better. And, and there was a couple of little stalking tricks, you know, I could have done different in New Zealand. But really, I pushed really hard. I hunted really hard. Uh, I held up. Um, I had a good attitude the whole time. I had fun. A lot of it was a group of guys I was with. They're just such great guys and great hunters, too. I learned so much from just being around great hunters, soaking up the knowledge from my Hawaii buddies, uh, Janus and Robin, you know, as as um, they get so much experience out there. And, and um, so talking to those, you know, I gain experience from that and, and hanging out with Remy. Remy's a true adventurer. And, um, you know, he, he's been down in New Zealand for, for years now, learning it, you know, living down there two, three months at a time and picking up guide work, you know. And so, you know, just hanging out with good guys like that, you learn a lot too. But, um, man, what a thrilling trip. So I'm excited. I kind of been holding back some of these pictures um, till I could get this podcast recorded and, released out to you guys and and um tell you about it but uh a wild adventure i'm i'm pretty fortunate and um just learned that i got uh, my special elk tag in montana so um the the lux, lucky streak continues I, I got a good karma cloud following me it's that good clean living i think you know so um yeah gonna be um hunting elk elk in a good spot next year and and uh yeah, it'd be fun to see the tags I draw. And man, I just want to continue to work hard to be the best shot I can. That's the first thing I did when I got home is put my bow together, walked out, fired my first arrow, and take a guess where it hit. 
right in the center, you know? It's like that thing is dialed. I just know it inside and out, you know? Uh, it's um, uh, a great first cold shot, and it's been around the world and back, and then um, just continuing to shoot every single day, um, continue to put on my miles, and, and um, it also gives me perspective on my life, too. It just um, being the best husband I can, the best father I can, and um, I just appreciate my family's support so much, uh, letting me go and do all these wild things, and so... Um, when I come back, I'm, I'm trying to be the, the, the best man I can be too, you know, whatever it is, even with easy stuff, whether it's just having a good attitude about things, um, you know, chipping in wherever I can to, to pick up, to do the dishes, to make dinner, to, you know, like if I, if, if, if I consider myself in such good shape to be above and beyond everybody else, I should have more energy at the end of the day than everybody else too, you know? And so just more effort there, just try to, try to be the best man I can be. So, um, man, what a fun adventure, you guys. Um, I just can't get over, you know, that, that place in New Zealand and how much different it is and how wild it is and, and, uh, the opportunities I had. So thanks a bunch, you guys, for all the support. I've been, I've been rambling on for long enough. Um, I want to support our uh, sponsors, uh, mention them again, Taito Knives, um, ultra lightweight replaceable blade knives. Um, they actually have a solid blade knife that's an ultra light knife now as well if you prefer that. Um, bright colors so you don't lose them. Um, they just do a great job. Make sure to check them out. Uh, iota scope rings so they have the level on the scope ring that way you don't can't your rifle it makes such a difference on on accuracy um, so that's really cool and thanks to iota for sponsoring the podcast we sure appreciate the support and um with that i better get out and get my run today um three o'clock here in the afternoon it's bear season I'm, you know, I, I don't really have the itch yet just to get out. And I think my buddy Dan's going to come down and hunt for a couple days. So I'll get out a couple afternoons with him. Um, I, I'm not too crazy about it yet. Just trying to get back in and get settled in, get the work done. I need to get done, um, work on the podcast here and kind of catch up. Um, but I'm sure I'll be out in the woods before long chasing these bears around. We've kind of had a big snow year and a winter's kind of held on for quite a while. So, um, I've got an early spot. Me and Dan are going to go check out. So it'll be fun to go hang out with Dan. Uh, I got a good podcast coming up with him. We recorded one. What was that? Right before I left shed hunting, like the weekend before I left, um, we recorded that. So I got that one coming up. That's always fun getting together with my buddy Dan. And I think this is the best podcast that we've done together. Um, this one was a good one. Um, I'll have to listen back to it and, and see what we touched on. But um, in, in my notes, I know that I was really excited to release it to you guys. It was a really good conversation. We were both pretty fired up. And um, so I got that one coming out. And, uh, yeah, just keep recording, keep working hard, um, keep working hard towards your goals, guys. Like, like these things I tell you, like, I don't, I don't make them up. It's, it's the life I live and it's the reason that I've had consistent success. It's just by hard work, dedication, discipline, um, you know, just putting in the work and, and effort equals success. And it just seems to come my way and, and not every time, but the majority of times it, it works out for me. And I really think that is the key to success. So, uh, keep working hard towards your goals and I'll check in with you guys next week.